Coming up, Michael continues his look at Disneyland in the 1980s. That's next. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 620 for the week of October 16, 2016. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel helping you plan that perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friends, Nancy Johnson. Hey! Squeaking her chair, Mary Jo Malata-Willie. Hello. And Michael Bowling. Hey there, hi there, hi there. All right, so last we left, it was the 1980s. I was graduating from high school. We, I went on grad night. Oh, wait, this is your story. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're going to... The 1980s may have begun quietly for Disneyland, but as we'll learn in this episode, they ended with a splash. <laughs> so, I see what uh, you so, did there. I know, really. So so I know Mary Jo and Nancy have their leg warmers pulled on for this. And, <laughs> we do, and our hair and, is big. I know, and Tom, you're wearing your sweater that's off the shoulder. And so... Um, <laughs> so and, and my, my members-only jacket. <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh, I forgot about this. And um, what are you wearing, what? Michael? Oh, I'm I'm in my tasteful Nehru jacket. No, that's a little earlier. <laughs> it's a little earlier. 60s, no, I was going to yeah. say he's wearing his Kelly green pants with his pink polo shirt. He's, he has that's his right. eyes on. Or, or no, what were those? Those those um those corduroy leisure suits. Remember those? Oh my, oh my god! With your wallabies. <laughs> yeah. That's too early for this era. Is it? Yes. So, anyway. Oh, well, anyway, okay. Well, in our in in our last episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, second quarter century, 1980 to 89, we ended with the corporate drama of the attempted hostile takeover of the Walt Disney Studio. And when the smoke cleared, Walt Disney's son-in-law, Ron Miller, resigned under pressure from the board of directors. The corporate sharks were gone. The billionaire Bass Brothers from Texas were now friendly major investors in the company. And former president of Paramount Studios, Michael Eisner, was chairman of the board. Former Warner Brothers co-chairman Frank Wells was president. And Walt Disney's nephew, Roy E. Disney, was vice chairman of the board. Now, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells immediately got to work, and they put their own stamp on the Disney company. Michael Eisner focused most of his energy on the studio, whilst Frank Wells studied everything about WED and the Disney theme parks. Meanwhile, Marty Scalar, the creative chief of WED, now renamed Walt Disney Imagineering, or WDI, had been looking at some sketches of the Country Bear Jamboree. And these sketches showed what the Jamboree might look like with Christmas costumes, scenery, songs, and dialogue. And Marty was wondering if an existing show could be successfully rethemed. Based on Guest's enthusiastic response to the 1984 debut of the Country Bear Christmas special, the answer was yes. This show featured the first use of Smellitzers in a show at Disneyland, which mm-hmm. filled the Country Bear Theater with the scent of fresh-baked cookies during the show. 
This Country Bear Christmas show was so popular that the WDI designers developed a new seasonal show, Country Bear Vacation Hoedown, which premiered in February 1986. So now, now we're getting into our era here where I think all of you are going to know the parks. So did any of you see these rethemed shows? Oh, heck yeah. Country Bear, Country Bear the Holiday. I loved mm-hmm. the Christmas show. We sang more all than regular. Songs. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I like the Christmas show over the hoedown. And then they, the hoedown just lasted a little too long. They never took it away after a while. And um, Yeah, they had the vacation hoedown. Is that what you're talking about? <clears throat> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I can still picture the songs in my mind. And, and it was just such a charming show. We used to always go in there. Oh yeah, that that was a not miss for us too. I love yeah. that show. So, and I never miss it at Disney World, even though they've butchered it. Um, now, in our previous episode, I related the meeting between George Lucas and Ron Miller at Silverado Silverado Winery, where they discussed a partnership to construct attractions based on Lucasfilm properties at Disneyland, even proposing a whole new land adjacent to Tomorrowland with seven new Lucasfilms-based attractions. With the changes in the Disney executive leadership, the talks had ended. Uh, Eisner and Wells were interested in restarting the talks. So on September 29th, 1984, shortly after Michael Eisner was hired, Eisner visited the offices of Imagineering to check on what projects were in progress. He told the staff, as you know, I'm really new to this business, but my son goes to these parks all the time. So I thought I'd let him guide me on what's good. The first idea the Imagineers pitched was Star Tours, and 14-year-old Breck Eisner excitedly said, Dad, we've just got to do that. It's unbelievably cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, we have a 14-year-old boy to thank for Star Tours. Um, Eisner gave the project the green light to move forward. The next project the Imagineers presented was Splash Mountain, which Eisner also approved. Then came the big question from Eisner. Now that we have these two ride ideas, we open them when? Next year or what? The answer fell on to Tony Baxter. Star Star Tours will take three years and Splash, which is a lot more elaborate, will take five. According to Tony Baxter, Eisner about died. However, change did come quickly to Tomorrowland. The Tomorrowland stage, which had been a popular venue for musical performances and dancing, was slated to be removed for a top-secret project. The park's live entertainment producers quickly searched for a replacement dance area, and they turned to WDI for help. At the same time, the Disney marketing team were looking for ways to make Disneyland more attractive to the teen market. Michael Eisner and Frank Wells wanted to capitalize on the popularity of music videos and MTV to bring the older teen and young adults attracted to that type of entertainment into Disneyland. They took note of the success of Studio K at Knott's Berry Farm, which was attracting up to 2,000 teenagers per night. And the idea for Videopolis was born. For three hectic days in the spring of 1985, Disneyland managers and WDI designers worked desperately on a new concept and master plan for the facility. 
In a schedule that would impress Michael Eisner, Videopolis from design to construction went up in just 105 days for $3 million and was the first Disneyland project completed in the Eisner Wells era. Disney purchased some of the staging facilities used at one of the facilities for the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics, which helped to um, hasten the project. Videopolis was constructed next to It's a Small World. Um, This location was selected because it was in a remote corner of the park and the sound could be directed away from Fantasyland and towards the backstage area. Now, this may have been appreciated by guests, but may not have been appreciated by the animal residents of the Circle D Ranch directly behind Videopolis. Now, Videopolis boasted a 5,000-square-foot dance floor and a sophisticated light show mounted on a giant grid structure that was slowly lowered from the ceiling, twisting and turning with searchlights pulsating into the night sky as a live rock band performed on the towering stage. Camera crews projected live images of the dancers onto two 16-foot screens and 70 video monitors adding special electronic effects to produce a real-time rock video. But wait, there was more. (laughs) Videopolis featured multiple special state-of-the-art effects, including a large computerized display wall and a system of light sticks designed to project optical illusions. Videopolis was an instant hit with teenagers, but not necessarily with the older set. In a letter to the Anaheim Bulletin, a mother wrote about punkers in Disneyland and stated that since the dance club opened, it's Halloween every day. The teenage rockers were also a far cry from the park's typical family audience. Their appearance and boisterous behavior kept Disneyland's security busy most evenings. Now, Mary Jo, I imagine you were a regular to video. <laughs> I wish. Those, those are the days before <laughs> annual passes. And, but I used, to, I used to dream about the time that I would have an annual pass so that I, uh, so that I could go dance at Videopolis. Mm-hmm. But, um, Never, never quite made it. But I remember oh. those big, those big screens. Mm-hmm. They had these big, huge screens, and I guess they with the bands playing on them, and and all the teens dancing. And no, my one of the, my goals when I was a kid was to grow up and dance at Disneyland. <laughs> really? But, oh, and yeah. In your white go-go boots and, and all exactly that. in in the in the huh? go-go cage in my yeah, but <laughs> didn't, didn't never never did make it to that hmm. well you know it, it's never too late to 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 realize your dreams mary joe <laughs> there's there's what the, else you have over there i'm waiting for you and tony to bring your band so that we can dance over at tomorrowland <laughs> terrace <laughs> yeah i'll we'll have to i'll have to send you our calendar <laughs> thanks <laughs> a global hygiene revolution exactly yeah. <clears throat> However, it wasn't long before the local teens who made up most of the Videopolis crowd grew bored with the dance videos and rock bands. As soon as their crowds dwindled, Disney tradition gave the Videopolis stage a new life with lively productions of popular live shows featuring the Disney characters. Meanwhile, rumors of the secret project that forced the closure of the Tomorrowland space stage were beginning to leak out. 
Shortly before the 1984 Christmas season, Walt Disney Imagineering's president, Carl Bongiorno, and Dick Nunes received a call from the new Disney president, Frank Wells, who asked, what would your designers want to do if they could develop an attraction with Michael Jackson? Bongiorno and his staff decided they would like to use their newly developed 3D camera system, which they had developed for use in Epcot Center to create a 70-millimeter 3D rock adventure starring Michael Jackson. So right after the Christmas holidays, one of Disney's greatest fans visited WDI, accompanied by Jeffrey Katzenberg, now the chairman of Walt Disney Pictures. Michael Jackson met with the Imagineers and designers and listened to their proposals for a 3D film musical. Imagineering's Rick Rothschilds drew up three different storylines. Michael Jackson liked all the ideas, but settled on one, Captain EO. The name Eo comes from the Greek goddess of the dawn, Eos. Her rosy fingers opened the gates of heaven to the chariot of the sun. You might remember that from um, Fantasia. Um, Rothschild became the show director. Jackson stated he'd like to do the project with either George or Stephen. Of course, everyone knew he meant George <laughs> Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Spielberg was unavailable as he was working on the film The Color Purple. Fortunately, Lucas was already working with WDI on several ideas for Tomorrowland attractions based on Star Wars. Lucas hired Lemurand to write the script with input from Coppola and Lucas. Lemurand had produced and scripted a recently released science fiction-themed film with comedy elements, Electric Dreams. Lemurand had also recently produced Yentl. So he would serve as the on-site producer. Lucas would be credited as the executive producer. Angelica Houston was brought in to play a spider-like alien version of the Evil Queen from Walt Disney's classic Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, suspended in the air by web-like cables. Tony Award-winning John Napier, who had earned high praise for his work on the musical Cats, was added to the production and built a miniature theater in scale to demonstrate the interactive effects for the show, which so impressed Michael Eisner that when Napier wanted to lift the ceiling of the theater to eliminate an interfering beam, Eisner immediately approved the additional expense. Napier also designed costumes to represent the evil nature of the dark planet and its twisted metal and steaming vents, whilst having the flexibility of movement for the dancers to showcase Jackson's dance style. Now, Jeff Hornaday, who had done the choreography for the hits Flash Dance and A Chorus Line and had recently worked with Paul McCartney and Jackson on the Say 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 music video, was hired as choreographer. Rick Baker, who had been makeup artist for Jackson's Thriller video, was brought in to supervise the makeup for Captain EO. And Tom Berman was responsible for the makeup design for Houston's character. It took three hours each day to apply Houston's detailed makeup. Um, Baker was also credited as being responsible for Fuzzball. He was my favorite character in the whole thing. Um, Lance Anderson, who was a creative designer on the recently released Ghostbusters, assisted with the design of the remaining crew of Captain EO, Hooter, the Geeks, and Major and Minor Domo. James Horner, who had recently scored Disney's Something Wicked This Way Comes, wrote the original score for the film. 
Michael Jackson wrote the two songs featured in the film, We Are Here to Change the World and Another Part of Me. Pre-production on the project began March 1985. There was three weeks of principal photography. In no time at all, schedules slipped, budgets drained, production costs soared, marketing plans changed, and frustrations grew. In other words, it was a typical Disneyland (laughs) project. (laughs) Captain EO ran over budget. The biggest factor was special effects, some 150 of them, more per minute than Lucas had used in Star Wars, Eisner said. Live theater special effects were added to the Magic Eye Theater for the Captain EO film, including lasers, fiber optic stars, and fog effects that were all synchronized with the action on screen. It was reported that the 17-minute film cost more than $1 million per minute. The original budget was for $11 million. Now, the film tells the story of Captain EO, the leader of a spaceship's ragtag crew, which included a dwarfish, clumsy, green, elephant-like creature called Hooter, a small, long-tailed, orange flying creature called Fuzzball, two conjoined creatures known as the Geeks, Idy and Odie, who served as the navigator and pilot, and a robot security officer named Major Domo, who had a smaller robot, Minor Domo, attached as a module to his back. Commander Bog, who's the holographic head performed by comedian Dick Sean, who was never on the set, was displeased by the bungling of this group of misfits and has given him one final mission to redeem themselves. They are to follow a homing beacon to the forbidding, dark, industrial planet of sinister, twisted metal and to give a gift to the supreme leader, who is Angelica Houston. Crashing on the planet, the crew finds its way to the palace of this witch queen creature and are captured by her army and threatened with torture for their unauthorized visit. Captain, that she is beautiful, that she is beautiful, that she is beautiful, but without a key to unlock that beauty. His crew transforms into a musical band, but before he can share his magical song, Hooter accidentally stumbles into the equipment, rendering it momentarily useless, angering the queen, who orders her guards to capture Captain Eo and his crew. A short battle ensues before Hooter repairs the equipment. Eo's song transforms the dark mechanical inhabitants into agile and colorful backup dancers. (laughs) Captain Eo is able to defeat the queen's whip warriors and change not only the queen into a beautiful woman, but also her palace into a peaceful, vibrant Greek temple. The planet is transformed into a verdant paradise. Captain Eo and his crew dance off back to the ship and leave the planet as the grateful inhabitants wave them goodbye. The finished footage... The end. So, were you all fans of Captain EO? At the time, I was. Yeah, it was really fun in its day, yeah. Michael, do do we know what the two ideas that Michael Jackson turned down were? They were all along... They they were all sort of little science fiction-y kind of things. Gotcha. But this is the one that really he really liked you know because it was all sort of in the peter pan yeah. kind of vein yeah. as well so now according to captain eo cinematographer peter anderson michael had a propensity to do his crotch grabs 
<laughs> it was kind of an yes. it was kind of unheard of back then. And this was Disney. I was told to crop the upper torso or go for a tighter shot or something like that. But they were part of his routine. So it wasn't like he was only occasionally doing it. It was on his beat. Disney started cutting the film together and saying, oh, dear, oh, dear. Michael also had a rather high-pitched voice. People weren't used to hearing him talk. They were used to hearing him sing. The studio was trying to figure out how to modulate or replace his voice for the talking scenes. There were groups of people at Imagineering and some at the studio that were afraid that that would make EO feel too comedic. There was some playing around with the idea of changing the octave. There was even a discussion about doing voice replacement for him. There was a whole thing going on in the background of how do we do it and not offend him? And I remember sitting there and saying, you're actually going to change Michael's voice? They desperately wanted to, but no one had the guts to approach him on it. Now, Captain EO first opened at Epcot Center on September 12th, 1986, but the big premiere was scheduled for its Disneyland opening on September 18th, 1986. The film later would, would open in Tokyo Disneyland in 1987 and Disneyland Paris in 1992. Frank Wells renegotiated Kodak's sponsorship contract so that Kodak agreed to pick up some of the costs of producing the film, building a theater at Disneyland, and renovating Epcot Center's 3D theater to accommodate the new special effects. Um, the week of the grand opening, the National Enquirer printed a photo of Jackson lying in a hyperbaric chamber. It was theorized that in order to live to be 150 years old, he slept in it each night to breathe a special oxygen mixture. Do you, any of you remember seeing that? Yeah. 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 yeah that was a hoot. In reality, several biographies of Jackson revealed that Jackson himself leaked the picture purposely at the time to draw attention to the premiere of Captain EO and its science fiction theme. There were more than 200 members from the international press who attended the Disneyland premiere. They were ushered into the Tomorrowland Space Place restaurant and given a press kit containing nine separate releases, six photos, and a commemorative Captain EO t-shirt. Surrounded by fresh coffee, soft drinks, and croissants, the press could watch a trailer about the making of the film on an endless loop. The big parade of celebrities started around 2 p.m. More celebrities attended the grand opening of the film at Disneyland than had attended the park's grand opening in 1955. And I always like reading, going back and seeing who the celebrities were at that time, <laughs> uh, anytime there was a special event, because it's always fun. Um, okay, so celebrities included Catherine Bach, Elizabeth Montgomery, Alan Thicke, Eric Estrada, John Ritter, Lisa Hartman, Whoopi Goldberg, Charles Bronson, Sissy Spasic, Spasic um, Sarah Purcell, Dr. Joyce Brothers, <laughs> an odd course, yes. Deborah Winger, Elliot Gould, Dolph Lundgren, Apollonia, wow. Cotre Apollonia Cotrero, and Jack Nicholson, right. who, who rode with his then-girlfriend Angelica Houston down Main Street in an antique mm. car waving to cheering fans. However, the celebrity who drew the loudest cheers from guests was Annette Funicello. 
<laughs> um, Jack Wagoner, well known as the voice of Disneyland, announced the celebrities as they drove by. The parade from the front of the park to the hub did not end until 3.30 p.m. And officially, there were 125 celebrities who participated. Even Michael's sister LaToya and his mother Catherine were chauffeured down the street. By 5 p.m., guests were starting to become squirmy with the rising heat, but it was still not time to see the film. Jack Wagner introduced the Pine Bluff High School and Washington High School marching bands and Greg Burge from a chorus line who burst into an original Disney song about Let's Make Way for Tomorrow, followed by a parade float featuring costume character versions of Hooter, the Geeks, and Major Domo. At the end, CEO Michael Eisner smiled and addressed the crowd. Michael Jackson is here. The crowd got very excited, but Eisner continued, but he is disguised either as an old lady, an usher, or an animatronic character. Nobody in the audience, especially the journalists, believed Eisner. After a speech by Kodak's vice chairman... Coppola, Lucas, and Angelica Houston gathered at a red ribbon drawn across the entrance of the theater. Nearby were Coppola's nephew, Nicolas Cage, and the newest Jackson superstar, Janet. For the dedication, these celebrities read, okay, Houston, for all those who still believe in the magic world of fantasy and imagination, then Lucas, for all those who are still moved by the wonders of music and dance, then Coppola, for all those who share Walt Disney's dreams and delights in the promise of the future, we cut this ribbon signifying the opening of the 3D musical motion picture space adventure, Captain EO. Now, Tomorrowland wasn't the only realm seeing action. On March 29, 1985, the original shooting gallery was replaced by the Frontierland Shootin' Arcade. Guests could take aim with one of the 18 guns and take 20 shots at 97 animated figures in one and a half minutes. The rivers of Adventureland's jungle crews were drained to refurbish the track, rebuild the Kilimanjaro rapids, and replant some of the vegetation to create a lush, dark rainforest. The old rumors of the Disney company selling Disneyland resurfaced. The difference this time was that the rumor came from Disney's CEO, Michael Eisner. One idea Eisner was considering was to sell the individual attractions to outside companies. Disney would continue to manage the attraction, but the new owner would be responsible for the operation and would receive the profits. Eisner stated, we're not going to sell any assets that we won't continue to manage. However, I don't want to mislead you. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Walt Disney's production stock rose on this news. So how, do you, how different do you think the parks would look today if Michael Eisner had gone through with that plan? Oh, my lordy. There would be ads everywhere and billboards. And, I mean, even more so than they are now with the little sponsorship things. I, I can't yeah. even imagine how Disney being farmed out to different companies. Stop moving. Well, the, I know. I know, right? I'm sorry. I sat up in my chair to get to the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean... 
can you imagine what how difficult it would be to get anything done in that park any growth plans anything like that any attraction changes i mean what happens if an attraction needs to be modified isn't that kind of you know epcot world showcases somewhat i mean with the with the countries owning the or providing the money for the attractions and then disney managing them yeah, but yeah, I think there's still codexes in there that Disney has certain quote-unquote inalienable rights. Mm. Yeah, and, well, and that's why we have Frozen in the Norway Pavilion, yeah. because um, the government of Norway nor their um, any of their corporations would fund it, yep. would fund, you know, fund upgrading it. Right. So Disney said, fine, if we're paying for it, we're deciding what goes in here. Yep. And now we have frozen. So blame anyway, it on, well, blame it on you know, that's right. Well, you know, Morocco um, was the only one that sent their own people to do anything. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, the, they they wanted it accurate. Yep, and it's because of that. It's one of my favorite pavilions, actually. Mm-hmm. Now, during this time, the Star Wars team had been at work on the park's first attraction based on a non-Disney intellectual property. Adventure Through Inner Space closed on September 2nd, 1985, and the very next day, the destruction of the attraction began. Disney Marketing named the new attraction Star Rides. In a series of meetings with marketing, the Imagineers attempted to get across the fact that they've spent 30 years training people not to call the attractions (laughs) rides. Finally, the project's lead designer, Tom Fitzgerald, suggested the name Star Tours, and everyone agreed. The attraction's backstory is a sort of sequel story set shortly after the events of Return of the Jedi. Our heroic droids C-3PO and R2-D2 have found new masters and new employment at Star Tours, an intergalactic touring company loosely based by classic Hollywood bus tours. But Star Tours would embark on routes to a galaxy recently made safe by the Rebel Alliance's decisive victory over the Empire. Now, George Lucas came up with the idea of having a droid for a pilot, a character who would literally drive the story and narrate the experience, a sort of intergalactic jungle cruise skipper. However... Rather than having the brash robotic version of Han Solo that was proposed by Lucas, Tony Baxter suggested a more timid and decidedly nervous rookie on his first flight. An RX-24, or Rex, came to be. When Star Tours was under development in 1985, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was one of the biggest hits of the summer movie season. So Tom Fitzgerald thought Paul Rubens would be, the per- would be perfect as the voice of Rex. Actor Anthony Daniels, who had portrayed C-3PO in the films, was brought in to voice C-3PO. He also acted out the entire pre-show so the Imagineers could shoot reference footage to later help guide the programming of the audio-animatronic C-3PO. Tom Fitzgerald and show writer Mike West lent their voices to the two worker droids, G24T and G290, who took their names from the singing geese, The figures had once played in the audio-animatronics musical America Sings. Stripped of their artificial skin and feathers, the audio-animatronic figures looked just like droids from the Star Wars galaxy. 
As for the story, George Lucas thought it would be fun to tell a story in which something goes horribly wrong in the happiest place on Earth. Mm. And so the experience begins with an addled Rex immediately piloting the Star Speeder 3000 off course and almost crashing guests into a maintenance bay. And it all goes downhill from there. Rex ultimately lands his passengers in the middle of one of the last remaining battles between the evil empire and the rebel alliance, getting caught in the crossfire between X-Wing starfighters and Imperial TIE fighters. The adventure culminates in an all-out assault on the Death Star, skimming across its surface as in Return of the Jedi, before embarking on the signature trench run from A New Hope. Was this a previously unknown third Death Star that had somehow evaded destruction? Ah, no one cared. There was no <laughs> way the Imagineers... <laughs> There was no way the Imagineers were going to create a Star Wars flight simulator attraction and not include the cl classic trench run. Dang straight. Yeah. yeah. Lucasfilm went into their warehouses and brought out many of the original props and miniatures from the Star Wars trilogy to use for the attraction. The show E2 figures in a pre-show pre are the actual droids that appeared in the films. For the ride film itself, George unleashed the same visual effects wizards at Industrial Light and Magic that had transported audiences to a galaxy far, far away in the Star Wars trilogy. The shoot was a challenge, unlike anything ILM had attempted before, because unlike a feature film that allows filmmakers to cut away from the action when composing a scene, the four-and-a-half-minute Star Wars Star Tours ride film would have to be one uninterrupted take, or at least appear to be so. The crew would find strategic places to make subtle cuts that went largely unnoticed by most guests. The ride film's other unique feature was that it would also be one long point-of-view shot. The audience would only see what was directly in front of them through their spaceflight. A side monitor displaying R2-D2 in his socket atop the Starspeeder 3000 would provide a small rear-view image, along with the occasional incoming transmission from a rebel pilot, but that was about it. The ride film had to tell the entire story from start to finish. Now, although CGI was just coming into use in films, Star Tours was shot the traditional way, using practical models and miniatures and computer-controlled cameras, just like the Star Wars feature films. The Imagineers were delighted over the discovery that the ride film from ILM could actually help make their thrill ride even more thrilling. The new flight simulators could only go up or down about 15 degrees, so the ride film had to exaggerate the motions of the Star Speeder 3000 and do most of the work for the attraction. So, for example, the speeder's plunge toward the surface of the Death Star was, in theory, a 270-degree spiral that would make guests feel as though they were dropping literally straight down. Well, the simulators obviously weren't capable of such an extreme motion. But the more limited movement combined with a dramatic white-knuckle drop on film created the harrowing, gut-wrenching experience the Imagineers were seeking – 
But the motion of the simulator could be deceptive. Sometimes when the star speeder was meant to feel as though it was accelerating down, the simulator itself was actually tilting back to make guests feel as though G-forces are pressing them back into their seats. So Star Tours opened with a special interplanetary launch event on the evening of January 8th. 1987, following a soft opening in December of 1986, giving the Imagineers plenty of time to work out any remaining bugs. The attraction then officially opened on January 9th, 1987, with a 60-hour party that saw the line winding all the way down Main Street to the park's entrance. George Lucas himself was on hand with Michael Eisner to help cut the ribbon with a lightsaber. At the cost of $17 million, the project took only 18 months to complete from research to grand opening. It was suggested that one benefit to this type of attraction was a new film could be shot and the ride reprogrammed very quickly. That'll never happen. George Lucas, I know, yeah. <laughs> We've heard that one before or since. Um, George Lucas was quick to caution that folks should not expect a 3D Star Tours version anytime <laughs> soon. That'll never happen. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> and so was Tom. The original version of Star Tours continued its flights to the moon of Endor until July 27th, 2010. On June 23rd, 2011, Star Tours The Adventure Continues launched guests on a new 3D flight through the Star Wars mythology. Now, Club 33 wasn't the only secret in New Orleans Square. There was another above the entrance to Pirates of the Caribbean. With Walt's growing family of grandchildren, he asked the Imagineers to design a new family apartment for both his family and Roy's in New Orleans Square. The suite would have a master bedroom and two smaller bedrooms for family members and was dubbed the Royal Suite. The suite would be accessible from a stairway just outside the one-of-a-kind shop leading up from a central courtyard, which would be open to the sky but be temperature-controlled. This meant Walt and his family could sit outside and enjoy a comfortable 70-degree breeze on the hottest of summer days and on the coldest winter nights enjoy the evening on the patio warm to a cozy 78 degrees. About a week before the suite was completed, Walt asked the designers how he was supposed to get from his this apartment to Club 33. I'm sure not going to walk all the way downstairs and then climb back up. <laughs> within, a, within a week, the designers had a new balcony connecting Walt's apartment to Club 33. Unfortunately, Walt passed away before he had the opportunity to stay in the suite, and Roy abandoned the idea of using the royal suite for family members. It remained empty for several years until the folks at INA, who operated the Carefree Corner on Main Street, USA, completed the interiors and turned it into a hospitality suite. During the 1970s and first half of the 1980s, the suite was used by a variety of Disneyland departments. In 1986, Tony Baxter was trying to come up with a plan for dealing with the congestion in front of Pirates of the Caribbean. And his solution was an elevated walkway that crossed over the top of the Pirates of the Caribbean queue in roughly the same spot where a footbridge had been when the park opened in 1955. 
During the design process, Tony Baxter realized it would be easy to add a pair of sweeping staircases leading up to the royal suite. And around this same time, Imagineer John Hench was trying to find a space in Disneyland for a small art gallery. He wanted to fulfill Walt's desire to have an art gallery showcasing the work done by Imagineers. Walt had told Hench, we ought to have ourselves a little gallery next to the commissary. Some of these guys around here are very good artists. John thought Disneyland John thought Disneyland would be the perfect location for this gallery. As John said, now we have several decades of marvelous art to share with the public. Art which was instrumental in turning Walt's dreams for the parks into reality. John decided the perfect place to celebrate this art was inside of Walt's personal suite in New Orleans Square. The Imagineers and designers began to transform the suite into an art gallery. At the top of the twin staircases, French doors were added that led into the space originally designed to be the living room. Original artwork was hung on the walls, and most of the exhibits consisted of attraction models, including the original model of Sleeping Beauty Castle and other artifacts. The master bedroom and guest bedrooms were used as galleries. The dining room was converted into retail space, and the kitchen was a sales counter with a small sink still beneath the cash register. The climate-controlled courtyard remained, although the heating and air conditioning systems were not used. Guests were allowed to sit on the balcony to enjoy spectacular views of the rivers of America. And that was the best dessert party for Fantasmic ever. Amen. Oh, yeah. All the other ones look uh, like crap in comparison. I well, know. I know. It was that way, but... <laughs> No, they but, do. Oh, I mean, you gosh. get a little box of treats versus that beautiful spread with the unlimited coffee and cocoa. And hot chocolate. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and no matter how hard I tried, there was still food left on that table by the end of Fantasmic. Oh, heck and if yeah. You, and if you were there for the second showing, they just let you stay there and you could just keep eating and hanging yeah. out. So it was great. And I really I I loved actually, the it's... climate control patio. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so nice. Now, on on July 11th, 1987, the suite opened to guests as the Disney Gallery and featured the Art of Disneyland exhibit featuring rarely seen original concept art and scale models of park attractions. After hosting numerous exhibits, the gallery closed on August 7th, 2007 and was converted into the Disney Dream Suite as part of a 50th anniversary promotion for the park. It reopened in the former Bank of America building on Town Square on October 2009, where it is now part of the Disneyana shop. But it is only a, it's only a shadow of what it had been, in mm -hmm. my opinion. But I'm glad there's, there's still something left of it. In December 1986, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers recognized the Disneyland monorail system as a historic mechanical engineering landmark. On April 17, 1987, the new Mark V trains began taking guests on a tour from fiberglass rather than from fiberglass rather than from fiberglass rather than steel and featured onboard computers, wheelchair access, and an advanced suspension system. The new train bodies were placed on the original chassis, and the door slid shut rather than opening outwards. 
But the most disappointing feature of these new trains was the absence of the pilot's futuristic bubble dome. In 1988, the Walt Disney Company completed the purchase of the Disneyland Hotel, which most people already thought Disney owned. This is the first hotel property Disney owns in California. To learn more about the rich history of the Disneyland Hotel, listen to my two-episode interview with Disneyland Hotel historian Don Ballard on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. Now, Disneyland had a couple of major problems that irked Dick Nunes. The first problem was bear country. As we discussed on an earlier episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, bear country had only one major attraction, the Country Bear Jamboree. And Tomorrowland was congested due to the popularity of its new thrill attractions. And Nunes wanted to attract more of those guests to the largely empty bear country. Secondly, close to 10 years after the country's bicentennial, America Sings in Tomorrowland was no longer drawing crowds, and Nunes was anxious to find an attraction to replace it. Nunes decided he wanted a log flume ride like Knott's Berry Farm's popular Timber Mountain Log Ride and turned to Tony Baxter for ideas. According to Tony, He wanted something like Pirates of the Caribbean, but more exciting. I wanted to help him, but I really didn't know what to do. Whilst stuck in traffic on Interstate 5, or the 5 as the locals amusingly call it, (laughs) Tony was thinking about recent discussions between the Imagineers and George Lucas about ideas for Tomorrowland. One of the ideas included closing America Sings and tearing down the former Carousel of Progress Theater. Tony thought the loss of all those audio animatronic figures would be a terrible waste. Then he had an idea. The various critter performers of America Sings would fit perfectly in an attraction themed to Song of the South, which featured various animated critters throughout the film. Imagineer Bruce Gordon remembered the day Tony Baxter pitched the idea. Tony came up with the idea and suggested it that morning. By the end of the first day, we knew what the show was going to be. That's the fabulous part of the attraction. We heard the idea and it just clicked. It was just a natural. The three of us, Tony, Bruce Gordon, and myself, literally spent the next three days in Tony's office preparing about 30 storyboards and outlining the entire project. The attraction went through several names, including Song of the South to Zippity Doodah to the Zippity River Run. It was Michael Eisner who finally said, it's a mountain, you splash, it's Splash Mountain. Michael (laughs) Eisner also wanted the new attraction to promote the Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah romantic comedy Splash by having an audio animatronic mermaid included at the end of the drop. The Imagineers pretty much ignored this idea. As you know, the story of Splash Mountain is based on the Disney film Song of the South, which is based on the Uncle Remus stories collected by Joel Chandler Harris. Rather than focusing on a single Bear Rabbit story, the ride combines elements from a variety of different stories retold in the film. Over the years, Disney has distanced themselves from the controversial 1946 film, which has never been released on home video in the United States due to concerns over political correctness and racial sensitivity. Splash Mountain is one of the few reminders left that Disney ever produced the film. 
the Imagineers and designers pulled all of the model sheets for Song of the South from the Imagineering Resource Center to define the look of each character originally designed by the Disney animators. The character sketches were displayed on a wall next to a list of scenes from the film that would be transformed into a scene on the attraction. The characters were categorized by type, happy, lazy, silly, then matched with the scene in which they would best fit. Mark Davis, who had worked on America Sings, had also worked on Song of the South. So several of his characters that didn't make it into the film did make it into the attraction as audio animatronic figures. When the designers were finished, Splash Mountain would feature 103 audio animatronic characters. The attraction presents scenes inspired by the animated segments of the Disney film Song of the South, as I mentioned, and as guests pass by in their log flumes. It tells the story of the adventures of Br'er Rabbit, who leaves his briar patch home where he was born and raised in search of his laughing place. However, Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear are intent on catching and disposing of Br'er Rabbit. Once Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear have Br'er Rabbit all tied up and are ready to burn him in a fire or cook him, Br'er Rabbit tells them they can burn him or skin him, but please don't throw me in the briar patch. Intrigued by the thought of doing just what Br'er Rabbit says he doesn't want, the two throw him into the briar patch and Splash Mountain Riders, too, plummet down a long hill, ultimately landing in the briar patch. This drop into the briar patch is 52 and a half feet. During the plunge down Chickapin Hill into the briar patch, logs can reach speeds of up to 40 miles per hour. Now, measuring 50 feet wide and 30 feet high, the Zippity Lady Showboat at Disneyland is the largest animated prop created for an attraction. America Sings figures that didn't fit into any of the other Splash Mountain show scenes were placed on the Zippity Lady. Near a Zippity Lady, take a look at the clouds in the sky. One large cloud is in the shape of Mickey Mouse. This hidden Mickey used to be painted on the wall, but is now projected onto the wall. Nick Stewart, who provided the voice for Br'er Bear in the film Song of the South, also provided the character's voice for Splash Mountain. And Jess Harnell, who voiced Wacko from the Animaniacs, provided the voice for Br'er Rabbit. Within 24 hours after ride testing of the log vehicles began, Michael Eisner visited the construction site and insisted on taking a ride. Since none of the water levels in the log flume had been adjusted, a large plastic trash bag with a hole punched in for air was pulled over Eisner's head to protect him from the deluge of water he would be hit with at the bottom of the drop. With six other Imagineers in the log to balance it out, Eisner set sail. When he safely returned to the loading area, his only words were, can we go again? Splash Mountain was one of the most expensive projects created by Walt Disney Imagineering at a cost of $75 million. In June 1989, when it opened to the public as the fourth and smallest peak in the Disneyland mountain range, the queue stretched across the park beyond the Mark Twain Riverboat Landing. With all the new inhabitants, Bear Country changed its name to Critter Country. 
Now, before Disneyland Splash Mountain was built, the location was home to the cave of a bear named Rufus at the entrance to what was then called Bear Country. Outside of his home was a sign stating, Sleeping Bear Quiet. In tribute to Rufus, guests can hear a bear snoring as they pass by Br'er Bear's home. So, I remember um, that. Yeah, yeah. And Rufus was also in the Country Bear Jamboree, I think. Wasn't he the one running the projector? In like yeah, the I country think so. bear down, I think. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I so, think so. Anyway, I love Splash Mountain. I just don't like getting wet and walking around in wet underwear. <laughs> so, anyway, it's fun, and um, and I and I like our version a little better than the Disney World version. Do you really? Yeah, I do. I don't know why, but they do have different scenes. Some are cool, and I like those little. I don't know what you call them. I know they have a name where it's almost like what? little, um, the rolling sort of bumps that they have. I like those. Do you it like the Walt Disney the, World one better? I like I don't, the I fact don't. that you can sit side by side the Walt Disney World one. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I prefer about it. <clears throat> but I mean, I like the, the U-drop mm-hmm. where you, you know, you go down and you come right back up to the same height. The closest thing we have to that is uh, on uh, Goofy Sky School. We have one of those U-drops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'd say that I like it better. I like the differences. Yeah. I, I can't say yeah. I like one better than the other one. Because there seems, at Walt Disney World, it seems to have more of a storyline. Where the one at well, Disneyland, def- as you've been describing, is you know a series of... They did a great job in tying them in together. But yes. it doesn't have a yeah. storyline like Walt Disney World has, in my opinion. Yeah, Walt Disney World <laughs> is definitely much more of these the true Song of the South story, as much as you can make it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I think they're both the great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as was tradition, Disneyland used its 34th anniversary to announce upcoming attractions and shows. Michael Eisner announced that an Indiana Jones attraction was under development, along with an update to Tomorrowland. He also teased the possibility of the long-rumored second gate. Another change was to the marquee in front of the park. The blue-and-white Disneyland marquee that had been on Harbor Boulevard since 1958 was replaced in 1989 with a new high-tech marquee that was one-third larger and featured a fiber-optic display that could show photographs. And this marquee would remain until 1999. I think it was also a little closer to the actual entrance. I think um, so. Can I tell you a story about the old sign? Oh, yeah. Um, I was driving with a friend from the Diz on Mulholland Drive and we're driving along and she says, oh, look, there's a Disneyland D up there on the hill. Screech to a halt because I screeched to a halt because I screeched to a halt and I was <laughs> and I told her, I know whose house that is. And you guys know whose house that is, right? I do. Especially Tom. Mm-hmm, my buddy John. <laughs> my yeah. other buddy John. Yeah, so I backed up on Mulholland Drive with all the curves and stuff so we could get a picture of, of that Disneyland D. And we, so we got a picture of it. Um, unfortunately, he lives in a gated community, so we couldn't go <laughs> up to his house to, get, pet, to see pet, if we the, could get it. The code is 1111. Yeah, uh, I could just see trying that. Probably get 
but you didn't do a Lucille Ball thing and climb over his fence like like Lucy did William Holden's and got his grapefruit. If I had been with Nancy, we might have. (laughs) She's adventurous that way, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, we were just happy that we just so excited, and I remember the whole story about him buying at least that. I don't know if he bought all the letters, but. I heard he only bought the D, although there, I think the initial story was he bought the whole sign. Right, yeah. But I think he only bought the D. Uh, and it still stands in his yard. Hmm. And and then when my friend, uh, she ran into him in New York, she told him that we saw his D. I'm sure he was probably creeped out. <laughs> I was hanging, I was lurking, I was lurking at your gate and saw the D. <laughs> Waiting for you to come out, open, open, open. But it's kind of cool. It's kind of a little, probably a little more grown over. But you can certainly see it from the Mulholland Drive if you're driving west. Oh, that's so. cool. Mm-hmm. Now, after um, 15 years, the Disneyland Preview Center on Main Street, USA, where guests could see models and concept art of proposed future park attractions, closed in 1989 and reopened as the Disney Showcase, selling merchandise related to Disney films. In Frontierland, Fowler's Harbor was reimagined with new buildings and landscaping, which allowed guests to get a closer look at the Columbia. 145 Four million guests visited the park in 1989. Not not too bad. So in my next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, we'll take a look at the Disneyland of the 1990s, which was dubbed by Michael Eisner as the Disney Decade. <laughs> so although I think it was a little less than a full decade. Um <laughs> Many so much books. happened in that decade, too. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. So. Um, now, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, including The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway, Disneyland Inside Story by Randy Bright, Disneyland The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, the Untold Story of Captain EO by Jim Corcus under the name Wade Sampson for Mouse Planet, December 30th, 2009, and Imagineering Star Tours by Jason Sorrell. And then I want to give a shout out to my lovely research assistant, Carol Bowling, <laughs> who as Yay, I... Uh, Carol. Yay. As I... As I... Um, I'm going through all my books and magazines and things like that and interview notes and you name it i have it and um i'll tell her oh you know i'm missing this little part of the story here or i know i know i read an article here and all that and then she'll go out and look for them for me and all of that and she'll find other little treasures for me so she um definitely contributes to all of these uh, all of these uh, stories and all that so i want to give her um you know a big shout out there and I'm and remember fans. oh thank you i appreciate that i know she does too so <laughs> and and remember i only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man walt disney excellent thank you michael that is going to do it for this segment of the Dis unplugged be sure to catch all of our other Dis unplugged podcasts this week and of course we will be back again with you next week until then remember Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.